0: It's very commonly said that the root of most human unhappiness is one's life has no meaning. And so, what would satisfy us as being meaning behind this world?
1: Say it, yourself, you know what? I'm going to enjoy the day. This is going to be a good day.
2: Creativity, decisiveness, passion, honesty, sincerity, love, these are the ultimate human resources. You are great!
3: And when you engage these resources, you can get any other resource on Earth.
0: Most of the things that we want very fervently are things that we've only half-glimpsed. Our ideals are very often suggestions, hints, and we don't know really exactly what we mean when we think about it.
2: When you say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, over and over again, you tell yourself a story, you begin to believe that story. Don't let your dream...
3: We have to pursue that question further, too. Why is it that a plan, why is it that fellowship with other people
2: gives the sense of meaning?
1: As 2019 draws to a close, our team at Raw Talk has been reflecting on the year that has passed. It can be easy to get caught up in the everyday hustle and bustle and lose sight of what motivates us. As grad students and members of the podcast, we ourselves sometimes find we lose sight of why we do what we do. And this can affect our well being. On today's episode, we wanted to take a deep dive into meaning and well being. What does it mean to find meaning, and how do we find it and integrate it into our lives? We invite you to join us as we explore the science, psychology, and philosophy behind meaning and well being. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Aditi. Welcome to episode 71 of Raw Talk.
3: Before we begin, we want to invite all of you wonderful listeners out there to please fill out our 2019 Raw Talk listener feedback survey that has just been released across all of our social media platforms. It will only take a few minutes of your time and your feedback on how our show is doing and how we can improve will be invaluable to us. And as a token of our appreciation after filling out the survey, you will get the chance to enter a draw to win some awesome prizes including our brand new Rawtalk tote bags, three gift cards to RYU worth $50 each, and a Muse headset. Check out our social media accounts for the link to the survey. Okay,
1: now back to today's episode. In our exploration of meaning, we will learn about ecstatic seizures, achieving well-being, finding a flow state, addressing the rise of a meaning crisis, and zombies. We were joined by our first guest today, all the way from Switzerland, to hear about her unique research. Dr. Fabian Picard is a neurologist and senior consultant in the EEG and Epilepsy Unit of the Neurology Department at the University Hospital of Geneva. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to experience even a moment of complete self-awareness and serenity associated with feeling like you fully understand the universe and your place in it? In the first part of today's episode, we wanted to begin by taking a brain anatomy-centered approach to the study of meaning and the feeling of well-being. Dr. Picard taught us about ecstatic epileptic seizures, a way in which it may be possible to scientifically study a sense of meaning and what occurs in our body during times of increased awareness and presence in the moment.
4: In the case of an ecstatic aura, the patient feels uh, a sudden state of bliss and uh, complete uh, serenity. Uh, this wonderful state uh, seems to be related to a, a sudden dive into the present moment. There is a complete centeredness on the present moment with uh, the ability to contemplate everything without any judgment as well as an absolute absence of worries. And the patients use different terms to describe the state of uh, ecstasy. They uh, speak about revelation or an epiphany, an understanding, a hyperreality, or a state of clarity. And I would like to, to add that during these ecstatic epileptic seizures, the patients feel an increased sense of self, an increased self-awareness, and often a much more vivid perception of the external world with more colors, more details, and they may report a sense of union with the universe. They say that they suddenly understand everything, the meaning of life, that everything is straightforward and beautiful. But it is important to, to bear in mind that an epileptic seizure is a dynamic process which can uh, spread out uh, to other parts of the brain. And uh, that uh, the patient may have convulsions immediately after the ecstatic aura. Uh, in other words, the term ecstatic is uh, related to the very beginning of the seizure.
3: Neurons in our brain are hyperexcitable during a seizure and they spontaneously synchronize together to fire at the same time. An example of this that we often think or hear about is when a seizure occurs in the motor cortex, which then causes a person to involuntarily shake or move. To better understand ecstatic seizures and what we can learn about meaning and well-being from them, let's hear more about the neurocognitive processes underlying this specific type of seizure. So, where does it all begin? in a small region of the brain called the insula. The
4: insula has many uh, roles, but the, the main function of the insula is the interoception. The posterior insula is a location where all the internal signals arrive from the inside of the body, uh, from the heart, from the respiration, the bladder, the stomach,
1: Interoception, as Dr. Picard tells us, is our sense of what is happening in our body, our physiological state. External signals from our environment will shape and provide context for these internal signals within the anterior insula. In other words, we will interpret these external signals in the form of emotions and feelings through the insula. Interoception helps us understand what's happening in our own bodies. How does our brain anticipate external signals based on our previous experiences though? Dr. Picard explains the theory of predictive coding, which understands the brain to function as a predictive machine and not just a passive receiver of environmental cues.
4: Uh, Well, the brain is always anticipating the signals which are arriving from the external world and from the inside of the body by predictions, uh, which are also described as top-down signals. And when the real incoming signal arrives, so when the bottom-up outcome is received by the brain, the prediction and the real signal will be compared. And the mismatch, the difference, will give rise to the production of a prediction error. And this prediction error will allow to update the next prediction. So there is a sort of cycle with always a prediction made by the brain, a real signal arriving, a comparison between the real signal and the prediction, giving rise to a prediction error, and then an update of the next prediction. The aim of the brain is to have the future predictions the closest possible to the real signals which are arriving now to minimize the surprise and to minimize uh, energetic
3: expenditure. Now that we have a better understanding of the normal function of the insula and the regular occurrence of predictive errors, let's circle back to the role, or rather, the abnormal function of the anterior insula in ecstatic seizures.
4: So, because of this abnormal functioning of the insula during the seizure, that cannot be prediction errors in the field of interoception. This would be uh, equivalent to an absence of mismatch between the predictions and the real incoming signals in the field of interoception uh, and therefore in the field of emotions. In other words, there would be a complete absence of surprise, of conflict, in the physiological state of the body which is never the case in our daily life. And uh, the positive emotions uh, which are described by the patients are probably secondary to this uh, stability in the state of the body and uh, to the consequent centeredness uh, on the present moment. So I don't think that the ecstatic epileptic seizure um, have primarily... Uh, positive emotions, but these positive emotions are related to to this uh, state of, uh, of the body without any surprise.
3: Although, of course, we will not all experience an ecstatic seizure for comparison, we're all continuously coming up against different magnitudes of prediction errors between what we expect and what actually occurs. How large these errors are, and how we respond to them differs between individuals and might provide insight into that person's sense of well-being.
4: We used to believe that the perception of the external world was a passive perception of a stable external world, which would have been the same for everyone. We know now that our past experiences play a role in the predictions we make about the, the immediate future. And that uh, these past experiences will influence and shape our perceptions. So the interpretation of the external world will depend uh, actually on the selection of our predictions best fitting together. But our predictions play a a, a major role in in our perceptions. And... uh, these predictions which are continuously updated participate as well as the real incoming signals to our perceptions. So I insist a little bit. And some authors even say that our emotions, our feelings and our self-awareness, self-consciousness, are actually the result of the succession of the interoceptive uh, predictions rather than uh, the result of the succession of the real incoming uh, interoceptive signals. So that's interesting to, to know that uh, uh, our, our self-consciousness is not the, the result of, of what arrives but also of what we predict.
1: It is quite fascinating that we can use neuroscience and the study of ecstatic epileptic seizures to help us towards understanding the neurobasis of self-awareness, well-being, and positive emotions. However, what does this mean for us in our day-to-day lives? The human experience of increasing self-awareness and finding meaning and purpose is one that is universal yet unique to each of us. One field of study aims to help people to find meaning in their lives by prioritizing well-being, the field of positive psychology. Although it is a relatively new field, it has attracted a lot of interest. We spoke with Dr. Taya Brashid, a clinical psychologist at the Health and Wellness Centre at the University of Toronto Scarborough, and President of the Clinical Division of the International Positive Psychology Association. Dr. Rashid spoke with us about how he uses positive psychology in his clinical practice to help people achieve a sense of well-being. But first, what exactly is positive psychology? Dr. Rashid begins by describing positive psychology using the acronym PERMA.
2: Positive psychology deconstructs well-being, less of a happiness, but more of a well-being into five elements. P stands for positive emotions, E for engagement, which is synonymous with flow, states of deep absorption, R for relationships, they are fundamental, one of the most important predictors of our well-being, now actually also predictors of our uh, mortality and uh, lots of health uh, status indices. P, positive emotions, E, engagement, R, relationship, M, meaning, as I I said, is pursuit of meaning. And last one is accomplishment, but accomplishment not because people may sometimes uh, misconstrue them. Accomplishment not for external rewards, extrinsic motivations necessarily, but using your strengths, using your own intrinsic motivation to do something, to pursue goals which unfolds your potential for the betterment of your own well-being and of others. I will ask our listeners, anyone among our listeners who is completely a saint or who is completely a sinner, those states don't exist. We are a curious and complex mix of positive and negative, yin and yang. In my view, positive psychology is a process of uh, bringing the best out of people. It's uh, of people, of individuals, of communities, and it is uh, setting the things which are right and ripe for people to be able to flourish.
1: So it sounds like it's a reframing of what we may think of as traditional psychology in terms of well-being. More so looking at, like you said, the flourishing side.
2: Yes, it's reframing in a sense that uh, I don't want to give this notion, although it's called positive psychology, the rest of psychology is negative. Psychiatry, psychology, social work, and many other healing professions have done tremendous work in terms of making ourselves um, manage our stresses better. We have number of clinical conditions for which we have uh, empirically based treatments. But why positive psychology is important in terms of reframing is it is expanding the frames. It is adding the lens in that frame of wellness. That if we were looking at uh, human beings traditionally from a deficit-based frame as damaged goods, as people who have genetic accidents, that they were destined to have uh, anxiety, depression because of biological underpinning, or they were, let's say, cruel victim of... Uh, very unfriendly uh, socioeconomic conditions so psychology was uh, mental health field was mostly about this damage control Uh, generic socioeconomic or their interaction Um, but what positive psychology has bring uh, in the lens of that yes a person is may have a lot of uh, injuries, um, but also they bring lots of assets as well.
3: Although Dr. Rashid currently leads Flourish, a preventative mental health initiative for students at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, he first began his clinical practice with working with children and families.
2: I worked in some of the toughest uh, neighbourhoods of the city, and uh, working with the families who have... um, very challenging circumstances. So some of my initial work was uh, with students as a school psychologist. And I'll give an example. I was given a referral and uh, the teacher said, um, Dr. Rashid, I'm pretty sure this kid has ADHD.
1: Dr. Rashid observed that this child was experiencing many challenges within the classroom setting, but he was also curious to see the child's interactions and experiences
2: outside of the classroom. Most remarkable thing was he was having challenges in the classroom, but also I had the opportunity, I wanted to also tease out his strengths. So I went to one of the play, uh, one of the uh, morning breaks and I saw this kid, it was absolute, astonishing display that he went it was a a play break and uh, he was uh, leading the basketball team and he told you go there you go there you go there you go there he coordinated and he was uh, there was a a leadership in him and he knew his spatial perception uh, was excellent Positive psychology,
3: as Dr. Rashid explains, is about bringing out the best in each other, looking for and focusing on each other's strengths, as well as our own. In this spirit, he shared another inspirational and heartwarming story with us. Again, it highlighted the importance of focusing on one's strengths, encouraging them to be self-aware, and acknowledging those strengths to help people reach their full potential.
2: I had a student, uh, maybe first couple of first years of my uh, work here, first couple of sessions just could not look at me in the eyes severe social anxiety and uh, after building some some moderate repo i asked them to tell me a st- sometime some story anecdote they were very proud and this is the story it's a brief one they said i loved basketball I was probably one of the good players and they wrote the story and they're telling the story without looking at me. Uh, but I, n- I was so socially shy that I could never bring myself to coach's attention. And uh, one time we were at away game. It was the last game of the season and uh, one of the key players got injured and there was no one else. The coach has no choice but to cue me to come to the court. And this is exactly I remember their words. I stepped on the coat and hundreds of piercing eyes were looking at me. I, was, I had a panic attack, but then I forgot everything and I played entire season. I played for three minutes and I t- scored three, sec- uh, three points and those three points took my team to the next round.
1: We can each find ourselves in daunting or unfamiliar circumstances where we may feel limited or incapable. But what if those exact situations which cause feelings of anxiety and fear are also those that shape how we experience happiness and meaning in our lives? Dr. Rashid has worked with refugee families as well as individuals who lived through the 9-11 attacks. We asked him how a positive psychology approach is used when working with individuals with lived traumatic experiences.
2: One of the, the couple of things about trauma trauma is uh, about crisis as well as opportunities of course as uh, careful and responsible clinicians and providers we need to be aware what is the immediate needs of the of our uh, patients and whatever we need to do to take care of them those needs uh, we should attend to them and they are protocols for that I'm all for that the the only added piece that I sometimes I'm able to bring in in working with people um, uh, who has experienced trauma if appropriate I would may also ask them about how they have previously dealt with similar situations because we are all of us and most listeners uh, will agree with with me that they have dealt with the situation and somehow the other they overcame it so just bringing that piece of efficacy uh self-efficacy is is can be uh motivating i'll i'll tell you a story about trauma in our clinic, we gave strengths uh, measure along with symptoms, and I wrote the strengths measure. And I when this is the first session, and the client came in and I looked at their profile then on my on my medical charts, and it looked their top strength was gratitude, and I also look at their history and and it was you can name it, it had everything. Young person, but had experienced multiple traumas from family turmoil to addiction issues to in homelessness and many other things. And and I sort of scratched my head and I said, how is the gratitude your top strength? And they said to me that I went through lots of situation in my life and one time it was the dead of the winter i don't know how i reached I arrived there but i woke up and i saw people who had just passed out of drugs and i was probably one of the youngest one around them and it was the dead of the winter and i looked out the sun was shining and the sky was blue I profusely started crying and I said to myself if I kept on going like this, I would never see another blue sky like this. I checked out and then, long story short, they, they found somehow ways to, to get treatment and they remarkably, remarkably entered university uh, on a scholarship. And, and when they are narrating this story in this very office, and it was uh, winter, and uh, it was snow outside, uh, ironically, and also the sky was blue. And they say, um, exactly, whenever I look at this blue sky, I'm reminded of that time. So tell me, Dr. Rashid, why I shouldn't be grateful.
3: In this episode so far, We've learned about meaning and well-being through a neuroscience and positive psychology lens. We wanted to shed light on another important perspective on this discussion, one that is certainly more unique for us at Raw Talk and perhaps for you, our listeners, as well. We had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with Dr. John Verveke, who is an associate professor in the Cognitive Science Department at the University of Toronto. He also teaches courses for the Buddhism, Psychology and Mental Health Programme. His work is on the nature of intelligence, rationality, wisdom, consciousness, mindfulness, and insight. We spoke with him to help us explore a more philosophical and cognitive understanding of meaning.
0: So the, I think the very cognitive processes that make us adaptive also make us beset to uh, self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Now, What has happened is across you know, historical and cultural contexts, Uh, Societies have developed uh, practices, uh, what I call psychotechnologies. These are sets of practices that fit the mind and alter our cognitive behavior. And they developed uh, ecologies of such practices, ecologies of psychotechnology to address these patterns of self-deceptive and self-destructive behavior and try to uh, ameliorate them. And then also to do the opposite, to afford an enhanced sense of connection that can often be lost uh, due to self-deception and self-destructive behavior and help, but they want to also enhance their sense of connectedness to themselves, uh, to each other, and the world. And that's that's what I ultimately think we're talking about when we're talking about meaning in life. We're using the word meaning as a metaphor for this sense of being connected in in deep and significant ways.
1: In the past, humans have turned to wisdom and used culturally-homed practices to address this lack of meaning in life. However, Dr. Verveke explains that somehow our current society has lost touch with this wisdom and has led us to what we are now facing, a meaning crisis. Dr. Verveke describes this meaning crisis in great detail in his YouTube series, which is fascinating and we highly suggest you check it out. We will have it linked in our episode show notes. In order to address the meaning crisis in today's society, we need a way to integrate this wisdom back into our culture.
0: I think we have generally used the term wisdom for those sets of practices that help people to deal with self deceptive, self destructive behavior and to afford the enhancement of meaning in life. Those you know, enhancing those sense of connections. So there has to be a worldview, a worldview that helps people model what kind of agent they should be and model the world for it's an arena in which actions make sense. That's why if you go to a culture that you're unfamiliar with, you experience such profound cultural shock, you experience loneliness, you'll experience kind of a a fast version of the meaning crisis. Now, why is that? Because we're experiencing a kind of cultural shock in this way. Given that the psychology of practices needs a cultural home in order to vouchsafe the cultivation of wisdom. Uh, we can take a look and see if we have such a, a worldview that legitimates and guides a set of wisdom practices. And we don't. So people, people know in the West we're the term for information and knowledge. Um, but now uh, if you ask them, and I frequently do, well, where do you go for wisdom? It, whoa, whoa. <laughs> and they mumble and they cough and they... Right? <laughs> and stuff like that.
3: Dr. Vervecki explains that this crisis is not something an individual can ignore. These patterns of self-deceptive and self-destructive behavior need to be addressed. But when people try to address this crisis in an autodidactic way, it actually worsens the crisis because our efforts are tainted with our own cognitive biases. Social media plays a huge role in exacerbating the meaning crisis by making it seem like we're talking with other people, interacting and connecting with others, but in reality, it is masking the fact that people are trying to deal with this wisdom famine in a lonely and fragmented manner.
0: Uh, given that's the case, we can, like I said, we can then ask a couple of questions. We could ask, how did we get here? What is the historical pathway that has led to a worldview in which we don't know how to cultivate wisdom? And here's the thing about the scientific worldview. It explains so much, but what it doesn't give us any good explanation of is how we make meaning how how we actually do science how we actually generate these explanations how right and and we 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 deeply don't understand how we pursue the truth if we can't understand how we cultivate meaning and how we find our agency within that meaning making and so this is what people are struggling with and this is why we're sort of truth has become such a contentious issue for us so you can ask historical questions of how did we get here and then you can also ask cognitive scientific questions What is this meaning-making machinery? Let's try and bring the best cognitive science we can to bear on that, so maybe we can explain it in such a way that we can then refit it back into a solid scientific worldview and then start, once again, talking in a collective way, guided by our best scientific knowledge of what it would mean to cultivate wisdom and meaning in a human life.
1: In Dr. Viveki's YouTube series we mentioned earlier, He explains that one of the reasons we have gotten to this point is because of an increasing sense of bullshit in our society. What is this bullshit exactly in our day-to-day lives, and how is it making us withdraw from reality and ultimately contributing to our lack of meaning?
0: Excellent question. (laughs) Um, So uh, the notion that I use is inspired by Harry Frankfurt's seminal work, um, his essay on bullshit. And so he laid down the basic idea and then I, I, I drew some uh, implications of it. I think they're fairly obvious implications. So I, don't, I, I can't actually see him in any way disagreeing with what I'm saying. So that's why I attributed this ultimately to him. So Frankfurt makes a distinction between the liar and the bullshit artist. And his distinction is that the liar, the liar depends on a shared commitment to the truth. So the liar depends on the fact that you care about the truth in order to try and manipulate you your behavior. They tell you something that isn't true as if it is true so that your commitment to the truth will alter your behavior. So no, although lying is evil, I'm not trying to excuse it, and, and it's pernicious, right? Uh, and it, it, it destroys trust and all of those very important things. I'm not ignoring any of that. But the thing about the liar is he's at least, he or she is at least still committed to the value of truth. right? in fact, lying depends on that. Now The bullshit artist works differently, according to Frankfurt. The, the bullshit artist tries to get you to be indifferent as to whether or not something is true. They try to get it so that you're not caring about whether or not it's true. And that's how they're, they're trying to direct your behavior. So I looked at that and I said, well, what is the bullshit artist doing then? We're like, well, how are they motivating your behavior? And this is where I think it's important to realize that a lot of our behavior isn't driven just by our beliefs. A lot of our behavior is driven by what's happening within our conscious perspective. So for example, let me, this is an example. You watch this commercial, people are drinking alcohol, right? And and the, the person is happy and healthy and there's all these beautiful people around them. And That's it's not, it's not what it's like in a bar. It's just not like that. And you know it's not like that and you know that alcohol actually makes you feel miserable the next day and it can be destructive. So you don't believe what you're seeing, right? But the point is, what does the commercial do? It makes it irrelevant whether or not you believe it. You, they know you don't believe it, and you know that they know, and everybody knows. And so the concern for the truth is put aside. But nevertheless, what happens? Independent of your belief, you find the alcohol attractive. It stands out for you. It's salient. You're attracted to it. And so you buy the product. That's why they invest all this money in these advertisements. Now, that's a form of bullshitting right? That's a form of bullshitting. And what's happening is, and we see this becoming more pervasive, the concern for the truth is dropping away. And all that matters is how attracted people are to certain ideas, to certain patterns of behavior, etc. Now, what is especially pernicious about this is because the connection to truth and reality are severed, you can see right away how that's going to undermine your meaning. It's going to undermine your connectivity, right, to yourself, to each other. To the world, so right there you can see it undermining um, a meaning. But here's a second way in which it undermines meaning. The thing about we use this metaphor for self-deception: we say we lie to ourselves. You can't actually lie to yourself. You can't say, "Hey, I don't really believe that Susan loves me," but I'm going to say to myself, "Susan loves me." It doesn't work that way. And part of the problem is is because belief is not something you have voluntary control over. You can't like pick a belief you'd like to have. Pick everybody loves you. Okay, believe it. Go, do it doesn't work. Belief doesn't work that way. But the thing is, attention and salience, how things stand out for you and attraction, they work in a much different fashion. They work outside of that belief machinery. right? So I can suddenly make something salient to you. If I say your right hand, you're suddenly aware of it and it stands out for you. Now, making something a little bit more salient makes it more attractive. Now, notice how your attention keeps wanting to go back to your right hand right now. Oh, how's my right hand doing, right? right? So notice what I can do. I can direct my attention to make something salient and then that will make it a little bit more attractive so it's more likely to catch my attention, right? And then notice what happens. And then it catches my attention so I pay attention to it more and you see how it feeds on itself and then what I do is I can bullshit myself until i'm super attracted to things, and then what happens is I only all the biasing mechanisms are being kicked into place right by all of this these fields of attraction so i will I will start to form beliefs eventually that are appropriate to the and that's how I deceive myself that's how I deceive myself so not only does bullshitting undermine the connectivity to realness by undermining our primordial care and concern for the truth it also undermines meaning by making us vulnerable to self-deception and of course those two things are linked the more somebody the more vulnerable I am to bullshitting myself the more prey I am to other people bullshitting me and those all reinforce each other.
3: As Dr. Verveke mentions we could all fall prey to bullshitting. This is because as he explains the same cognitive processes that help us adapt to our world are the very cognitive processes that make us more prone to falling for this bullshit.
0: And, and here's the key thing: that that directing of your attention and making something salient and ignoring other things. That's core to you being intelligent, because if you don't have that filtering ability, like so. If, this is what I do well, my major scientific work on. The amount of information that's actually available in this room is. Overwhelming. It's vast. You can't pay attention to most of it. Also, all the information being generated by your body, all the information available into your long-term memory, and then all the possible courses of action you could string. You could get up and sing right now if you wish, Right? There's right. This is the problem. What? This is the issue I call relevance realization. You're constantly. Your brain is constantly at many levels, many scales, many scopes. It is trying to determine what the relevant information is because it, it needs to zero in on the information that's relevant to whatever problems or tasks it's trying to address. So it's always having to screen off. So see, see what I'm trying to show you that the, that machinery which is the core to your adaptive intelligence, your ability to fit to the world in a way in which things are relevant to you and you're connected to you, is also the machinery that makes you prey to bias and self-deception. And this is why it's a deep and difficult problem to address. And you can't address it just by sort of having theoretical beliefs. You have to fundamentally get to the guts of that attentional and agentic machinery and transform it in a profound way. That's why I say awakening from the meaning crisis, not just solving the meaning crisis.
1: In psychology and Buddhist philosophy, we come across a term called ego. Many psychologists and philosophers have referred to the dissolution of our ego as an important step towards becoming awakened or enlightened. However, the concept of the ego has distinct definitions depending on the context and is often incorrectly used in our everyday language. We asked Dr. Verveke to define this concept for us and explain its utility in helping individuals awaken from the meaning crisis.
0: The problem with the term ego is we think it's a it has a single referent, but it's actually equivocal. It points to many different things. Same with the term self. And self and ego overlap in, in, in strange and confused and befuddling ways. So we have to be sort of really, really careful. Try and pull a bunch of things apart. I'm going to use the word uh, self to be the organization of your cognition that gives you agency, that gives you your ability. So what's an agent? An agent is different from a behavior. Everything behaves, everything generates behavior, right? An agent, at least, this isn't a comprehensive definition because what an agent is is a philosophically profound problem. But here's at least an important idea. An agent, unlike mere behaviors, an agent can in some sense determine the consequences of its behavior and alter its behavior to try and alter the consequences. So, in some senses, agents can therefore be therefore understood as problem solvers. This glass is not solving any problems, although it it behaves in a lot of ways. Is that okay? So, what I'm calling yourself is the structural functional organization of your embodied cognitive processes that doesn't just that doesn't just mean thoughts in your head it means the skills you exercise right the states of consciousness that are available to you so you have a structural functional organization of that machinery that makes you an agent what it fundamentally is doing i think is what i was mentioning earlier it's it's controlling at many levels in a highly complex and dynamically self-organizing fashion relevance realization how you realize what's relevant so you're doing it right now. You've got a whole topography of how things are salient to you, what's foregrounded, what's backgrounded. You're assuming an identity, you're assigning a bunch of identities, you're doing all of this stuff and, you, and you're doing it like that. And, and, and so you can't do without that because if you did without that, you would just face a nightmare worse than anything that cronenberg has ever produced you'd be facing a nightmare of, of, of a combinatorial explosion of information in all directions you would have no sense of your place or role or relevance to all that you would be you would be dissolved in terror you don't want that and i don't think that's enlightenment <laughs> <laughs> so the idea that we should that we can sort of fundamentally dissolve that machinery away, I think, is a mistake.
3: Dr. Ravake points to flow state in helping to dissolve the ego. He clarifies this idea of losing yourself by stating that people often misuse this phrase. Although the ego may have dissolved, your agency remains intact during flow state.
0: So people can get into a state, it's a, it seems to be universally available. There doesn't seem to be across, you know, gender... Across socioeconomic status, uh, language use, historical concept, everything. People can get into the flow state. Maybe you've had this. This is where you feel like really at one with what you're like. You, you, it's it's a weird state because you you know metabolically you're exerting a lot of effort, but it feels effortless. It feels graceful. You feel really at one with everything. The world seems very salient, super salient and alive. People get into this like in athletics or jazz or martial arts or poetry or video gaming. Okay. So you get in the zone, right? The flow state. Now notice what people reliably report in the flow state they don't report that their agency is gone because if their agency was gone that would be a disaster but what happens in the flow state is that narrative image management self-referential thing that we could call your ego that drops away and here's the thing here's the way in which it has been bullshitting you for your entire life because what it keeps saying is I'm absolutely necessary to your agency. Don't lose me because without me, you'll lose your agency.
3: That's the
0: ego. Yeah, that's the... that's At least what I've met, what I've I've tried to stipulate is how I'm using that term. I've published work on how flow is basically an extension of the machinery that's available in Insight. You know, when you have like an aha moment, you can think of flow like just an extended aha moment, right? (laughs) And so... And then and then you get awakening experiences and then you get enlightenment the point is all of that machinery so in, the sense that you just had of of how you can lose that narrative image managing status craving thing in your head and get your agency enhanced in flow imagine if you could extend that even more and more and more That, I think, is what happens when people have awakening experiences, mystical experiences. And then if that enhanced agency and the reduction of the bullshitting of the narrative ego drops away is directed towards ameliorating these perennial problems of self-deception in a comprehensive and systematic way, that's how I think we should understand enlightenment. Instead of just trying to define enlightenment phenomenologically and build all this mystique around it, let's reverse engineer it. We need to solve these perennial problems of self-deception. We need, to, we, need have, we need systematic and reliable ways to address that and to enhance uh, meaning in life.
1: Can flow state help us transcend our consciousness deeper and deeper in a way to reach enlightenment? Is there an end to flow state?
0: And Thank you. You gave me a perfect segue so that I can shamelessly promote my, my next book. <laughs> um, um, so the idea of the cognitive continuum... So let me quickly explain this notion of exaptation. This is Michael Anderson's work, I think is some of the best work and the the impact it's going to make on our ideas about brain functioning and brain development, I think are are going to be profound and pervasive. But basically what he, so let's do a, uh, let's quickly what it is biologically. So exaptation is, during speciations, right, the modification of the morphology of a creature by through processes like natural selection. right? Um, What you do is, evolution doesn't have to sort of make, I'm going to use design in quotation mark because there's no intelligent agency behind evolution, but language is agentic, so please forgive me. But evolution doesn't have to design from scratch. So notice I'm using my tongue to speak right now, right? Lots of creatures have tongues and they don't talk. So tongues didn't originally evolve for speaking, they evolved for sensing poison and for moving food around. And for weird evolutionary reasons, our tongues happen to be also in our air pathways, mm-hmm. right? And so this machine is highly flexible, highly sensitive, and can interrupt the flow of air in really significant ways. So it's a great machine to use for, for talking. So evolution doesn't have to make a speaking machine from scratch, it can exact the tongue. That doesn't mean you lose the tongue's function, right? Um, now, what you can think of is you can think that what, what our brains are doing, right, is they're exacting they're taking things that sort of self-organized for doing one set of problems, and then they get exacted for other things. The flow state is when you exact the insight machinery into something more comprehensive, but that machinery, that flow machinery can be exacted up into mystical experience where the dissolution of that narrative ego becomes profound. And the sense of at one becomes comprehensive and you feel profoundly at one with everything that can go even deeper. That can be exacted into an, what's called an awakening experience. So if the experience goes very deep, it can get into the depths of that machinery I was talking about, that machinery of the self. And remember, it's always not only the depth of the self, but it's the depth of the world that, that you're connected to. So you right, if the mystical experience goes deep into the machinery of the self and deep into the machinery of how you understand the world, you can have an awakening experience. What happens is, and and I've studied this a lot, is people get what are called higher states of consciousness. They get a sense of, see, most of our altered states of consciousness, we dismiss. We say, that's a dream. Oh, that's not real. Oh, I was drunk. That's not real. But what's weird about these altered states of consciousness, these higher states that I'm about to describe, is people go into them and they say, that was more real than all of this. And then because we want, this is the meaning in life, because we want to be deeply connected to what is most real, what people will do is they will transform their identities and their lives to try and stay in closer contact, greater conformity with the really real. I call this ontonormativity, the disnormative the, demand we're called by what's most real. Right? If in that transformation, they internalize a whole bunch, an ecology, of psychotechnologies for addressing perennial problems of self-deception and for enhancing even beyond what you get in the flow state, that deep sense of connectedness. Imagine people who had profound flowing insight and were deeply connected in such a way that they are always in a fluid and creative manner addressing perennial problems of self-deception. And their relevance realization was superb they come into any messy and complex situation and way better than you or I, they can zero in on the relevant information and adapt their agency to it. Wouldn't that be a wise person? Wouldn't that be a very wise person? That's what I mean by enlightenment.
3: In one of Dr. Viveki's recent publications, he makes an interesting argument that the zombie, which is a modern day myth, is a symbol of the meaning crisis. Since the meaning crisis is so pervasive in our society, does this mean we're all zombies?
0: Um, I wouldn't say everybody's zombies. <laughs> so uh, the zombie is mindless. So the, its meaning-making ability is really, really truncated, if not uh, almost zero, right? Notice that in many, many versions, the zombie is actually hungry for the meaning-making machine. They want to eat brains, which is really strange. This also points to that they're locked into a, a, an empty mode of consumption. And their consumption doesn't feed them. It doesn't nourish them, right? Because they're not actually sort of alive. Right. They're the only communal monster. They move around in hordes, but there's no communitas. There's no connection. There's no shared culture. And they don't have a home. They don't have a lair. They don't have a castle. They don't have like don't they don't have any of that stuff. They don't have a place they haunt. Right? They don't have a home. They're homeless. They drift. They're directionless. They drift. Right? They're like us in that way. They're us decayed. Everything about us has decayed and become ugly and lost contact and lost meaning and lost direction and lost purpose and lost community. Lost history. All of that's gone in the zombie. The zombie isn't even particularly threatening on its own. The zombie, it's just because they overwhelm you with their, so they work on mass, right? Like mass society where we're overwhelmed by the mass behavior of people that, and we don't understand why they're behaving, why they're doing the things they do. The zombie also is a perversion of, uh, uh, some of our oldest mythograms for, uh, the cultivation of self-transcendence and self-transformation. The, this is the mythological, and I don't mean this as an insult. I'm, I use this. I don't use this term pejoratively. I think the the zombie is a perversion of the myth of the Christian resurrection. So Christianity created this pathway for cultivating wisdom and self-transcendence and its and its ultimate mythological representation for that was the resurrection as exemplified in Christ and we could imitate him and participate. Notice how we end up imitating the zombies but only through infection and degradation and the and the way the zombie comes back is not right a life it's not it's not the life the abundant life that Christ promised. And notice that also that the, the, the zombie has magnetized and connected to another myth, uh, the uh, apocalypse, which is also originally a Christian idea. And so, so the apocalypse is like, remember, we talked about insight. The apocalypse originally meant revelation. It's like a, an insight restructuring of the entire world. Jesus returns and the world, the old world ends. But like in the sense, like when you're trapped in a problem and your old way of looking at the problem ends and a new way of seeing reality, like in an insight. So you imagine like an insight that was spread over the whole world and transformed it all. That's of the apocalypse. That's revelation. But the zombie apocalypse doesn't do that. The zombie apocalypse doesn't reveal or disclose a new way of understanding ourselves or reality. In fact, it is, in fact, it does the opposite. The zombie apocalypse brings no narrative closure. There's no finality. There's no solution. There's just the pervasive sense of the spreading of the despair and the degradation. So the zombies, I think, in, in many ways pervert, undermine right, all of the meaning-making machinery and some of our deepest and most profound mythological symbols for the cultivation of wisdom, transformation of meaning. So that's how I think the zombie represents what has become a a pervasive metaphor uh, for the meaning crisis.
1: In addition to zombies, the Joker, interestingly, also embodies the meaning crisis.
0: But what's interesting is there's a shift because whereas the zombie represents that sort of anonymous, amorphous mass, Joker is the isolated, fragmented individual who can't connect. Can't connect to himself, can't connect to others, can't connect to the world, and all that he has left of relevance Is narcissism just an empty absurd wanting people to look at him and pay attention to him right and so that absurdity of narcissism and that's why narcissism is growing and pervasive in our culture because it's sort of the last ditch defense and a very very degraded one of our relevance making machinery and so What does the narcissist do? Their position is ultimately absurd. So what they do is they violently try to bring about as much chaos and absurdity around them. So at least their narcissism is at least in that weird perverted way is legitimated because at least then everything is absurd. And so that is a particularly worrying trend in my mind because the shift from the zombie to Joker, if it happens, it's not clear if it's going to, but if it happens, it represents a much more violent, angry response. To the meaning crisis.
3: This might be a, uh, an overstatement, but collectively as a species, if we're evolving to either become zombies or eventually become jokers, that would result in the destruction of humanity. So and That's a real it, possibility. Yeah. So would you say that finding meaning is important to the evolution of
0: I, I think Humanity so. Humanity and... I mean, I, 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 I know. It, it's what I'm about to say sounds grandiose, right? And filled with hubris. But yeah, I'm trying to save the world. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I'm working with a whole bunch, a growing number of people who are putting... And it's so impressive. So many of these people are putting time and talent and their finances and their lives into, the, into these projects that I'm talking about. And so much is happening precisely because of this. And I think many of them, think that what they're doing is not just individually valuable even valuable to their community they're trying to bring about they're trying to sow the seeds of a cultural cognitive transformation that will yeah save the world to put it in put it in a rather harsh slogan yeah
3: as you might have gathered so far meaning is really core to who we are you may have initially thought that reaching enlightenment or finding true meaning could only be achieved on the highest mountains of the Himalayas but as you just heard, that isn't necessarily the case. Although cultivating wisdom and finding meaning isn't a cakewalk, there are active steps we can all take towards it. We asked all three of our guests if they had any suggestions or recommendations of habits we can adopt in our day-to-day lives to create more meaning.
0: First of all, frame this as not just a, a, a hodgepodge or list of practices. That's why I use the term ecology. Think about how various practices have, try to find practices that have complementary sets of strengths and weaknesses so that they can act as checks and balances on each other. You should take up a mindfulness meditative practice. And then you should also take up some kind of mindfulness contemplative practice. You should definitely have a movement practice like Tai Chi Chuan, especially a movement practice that gets you more in touch with a better taste for getting into the flow state in a much more comprehensive fashion. You need to take up practices of active open-mindedness. Here's a practice I do. I begin the day by reviewing some of the scientific research on various cognitive biases, uh, like the confirmation bias, whatever, right? And then what I do throughout the day is I try to notice instances where I am engaging in that bias and then I try to actively uh, counteract it. And then at the end of the day, I, I write in a journal about you know where I or I was falling prey to the bias. Maybe I didn't catch it, or where I did catch it, when I got into the flow state, when it, when, it, when the opposite was. When I so you you really sensitize uh, yourself with active open mindedness, getting into the flow state. You want to take up a practice of phileo sophia. You want to read not so much a lot of modern academic philosophy, although there's good stuff out there. But I would recommend getting in touch with one of the ancient uh, philosophical schools and getting into the literature like uh, and do, don't just don't fall prey to sort of orientalism and it's only the eastern things only in the east is there wisdom and all that kind of bullshit right uh, definitely take a look at Buddhist practices and Taoist practices but also look at You know, look at your own wisdom traditions. Read Hado's book, What is Ancient Philosophy, or uh, Philosophy as a Way of Life. Make sure at least one of your practices is socially organized, that you're putting yourself in touch with the collective intelligence of distributed cognition. Culture is our big adaptation. It shapes us to our environment and our environment to us. And we have to get reinvested deeply in our culture.
1: You just heard Dr. Verveki's take on some meaning-creating habits. Dr. Rashid also shared with us what he thinks we can do to unlock our full potential.
2: So flow is the main ingredient of our psychological capital. This is how we build ourselves. All most of us have Experience snippets of flow. So what I would suggest is that um, when when it's winter, when there's l- less light, let's have our clients, our students, our other individuals in different sectors tap onto their creativity because you you can be creative in many avenues you, and, and, and creativity can engage you. If possible, I ask them to explore their strengths and explore their strengths from multiple perspectives. So it's a very a bit of a technical way. Then they do a bit of a test which involves least amount of words then one is about language and then uh, uh, online self-report validated measure but more importantly I ask students um, and my clients to to request two people to identify their strengths not rank them but just identify their top five or four or five strengths and then put uh, all the profile together and even if creativity is low but there are certain st- other strengths which are high. For example, if grit is high, perseverance is high, curiosity, curiosity is high, appreciation of beauty is high, how can you use these strengths to, towards creative endeavors? So even a boring task, such as writing a term paper, how can you infuse bit more curiosity in it? How can you bring the element of something of love of learning, something that you did not know, how can you bring into that? So I think we also need to uh, demystify creativity from the high pedestal of, you know, the easel and the painting and the performing arts, that cre- creativity, everyday creativity which uses, which taps many other assets uh, and abilities so that's one way Uh, secondly i would say another uh, important aspect in positive psychology is relationships and connecting i i sort of so demystify the relationship in the sense that there's no perfect relationships all relationships are have some pluses some minuses so if we can gently train our mind our attention to spot the positives That can foster closer relationships. Not perfect, again, we're not going for perfection. And I think uh, connecting with others during this time, sharing their life, asking about their lives, sharing your aspects of your life, discussing things can be also very helpful to ward off the winter blues.
3: And what does Dr. Picard have to say? She believes that one of the reasons people who practice mindfulness often report experiencing positive emotions and a sense of centeredness, similar to those with ecstatic seizures, is because of prediction errors. And so by practicing mindfulness, we might not be able to change the size of prediction errors, but we can change the way we respond to them. And there you have it,
1: folks. We hope you enjoyed our unique and stimulating discussion on meaning and well-being from our diverse guests. Thank you to Doctors Picard, Rashid, and Verveki for sharing your expertise and insights with us. We hope that this episode may help in some way as we all may go through our own personal reflections as this year
3: draws to a close. A huge thank you to the episode team. We were your hosts, Aditi and Stephanie. Amber was our content developer. Grace and Erin were our executive producers. Alex was our audio engineer. And CJ and Thymia were our photographers. Don't forget to fill out our 2019 Raw Talk listener feedback survey. We wish you all a happy, relaxing, and meaningful holiday season. Until next time, keep it raw and find your flow.
1: Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. And rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.